This is Ben Gutman, author of Simply Put, Why Clear Messages Win and How to Design Them. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection in with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Ben Gutman to talk about his book, Simply Put, Why Clear Messages Win and How to Design Them, published by Barrett Kohler. Ben Gutman is an experienced marketing executive and educator on a mission to get leaders to connect more effectively by simplifying their message. Ben is a former co-founder and managing partner at Digital Natives Group, an award-winning agency that worked with the NFL, I Love New York, Comcast, NBC Universal, The Nature Conservancy, and other major clients. Currently, Ben teaches digital marketing at Baruch College in New York City, home of the Fighting Bearcats, and consults with a range of thought leaders, venture-backed startups, and other brands. And, interesting facts, he was president of the student government at Baruch College and was an intern for a member of the U.S. House of Representatives and a U.S. Senator. Ben, congratulations on Simply Put, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for having me, Douglas. It's exciting to be here. Nobody has mentioned those last two items in my resume in probably a decade, but uh, I'm glad you pulled them out. Well, there's all kinds of uh, research that goes on uh, by the staff here at the Marketing Book Podcast before each uh, interview. So speaking of Baruch College, uh, I used to live in New York City. Uh, Before we start, I would like to make an announcement for Ben's students at Baruch College. Any student who listens to the Marketing Book Podcast will receive a full letter grade higher on their report card. (laughs) And to receive that extra credit, you simply need to mention this to Professor Gutman. So that's very generous of you. I appreciate that, Ben. You know, I'm not above bribing, and I will absolutely honor that. There you go. There you go. So speaking of working for a senator, I have a friend I used to work with at J. Walter Thompson, New York, over in Manhattan. Adam Turtletaub. And for those that follow these things, he is the son of the comedy writer Saul Turtletaub, and he's the brother of the Hollywood director, John Turtletaub. Anyway, after college, Adam went to work for Senator Moynihan, who was one of the New York senators. And he did that for two years on Capitol Hill, and then he decided, you know, he wanted to go to New York, he wanted to work in advertising. And I kid you not, during the interview, they said, why do you want to go from working on Capitol Hill for a senator to working in advertising. And he said, I don't feel like I've hit bottom yet. (laughs) Very funny guy. And occasionally Adam even listens to this uh, podcast. So there you go, Mr. Turtletop. Couldn't resist. Now, I want to thank you for the autographed copy of the book. And it is exceptionally 
well written. And I can't believe it's your first book. You're clearly lying. And it also explains why I will be quoting liberally from this book during the conversation. And I'm full of ideas if I don't have to implement them. You could also do like a separate little booklet of just quotes from this book. So the book is endorsed by some authors who I've had the honor of interviewing, including Martin Lindstrom, Alexandra Watkins, and Michael Shine. And Alexandra Watkins is the author of Hello, My Name is Awesome, How to Create Brand Names That Stick, which was featured on episode 247 in 2019. And here is what Alexandra had to say about your book. Every entrepreneur and brand leader should read this book. But wait, there's more, Ben Gutman. Michael F. Shine is the author of the excellent Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers, which was featured on episode 322 in 2021. And here is what Michael had to say about this excellent book. One of my core beliefs has always been that boiling complex messages into simple maxims is one of the best ways to benevolently brainwash anyone. The question is, how do you do it? Ben Gutman's new book finally gives us the answer in a big way. We finally have the definitive text on how to execute radical simplicity in the real world and get anything you want as a result. So Ben Gutman, you hang out with a very uh, exclusive group of excellent writers. So there's many more blurbs than those, but I just wanted <laughs> to mention those two who I'm a big fan of. Uh, that was very flattering. That that caught me by surprise. Um, I mean, both Alexandra and Michael are some of my favorite people. And it was, I mean, some of my favorite books. And uh, that's incredibly flattering. So <laughs> thank you for sharing that. Well, there you go. I tried to surprise my guests, you know. And uh, I think I warned you beforehand, just so you know, listeners know, the guests don't always know what's coming, okay? And so Ben is already uh, handling everything with great uh, poison and, and good humor. So uh, let's get ready to rumble! On to the book. I want to read from the preface, which I just loved. Look, I fully realize the irony here. This is a 208-page book about how to say things simply. It really doesn't seem like I took my own advice, now does it? This whole thing started while I was trying to answer a basic question that I've been attempting to solve my entire career, something that clients would ask me while I was running a marketing agency or my college students ask when I'm teaching them the ropes. Why do some messages work when others don't? The question is simple, and it turns out the answer is also quite literally simple. That first part isn't particularly revelatory. If all you want to know is the top-line answer, that's it. Simple messages are more effective than complicated ones. If that's enough for you, hopefully I caught you before you checked out and saved you a few bucks. <laughs> but I noticed something <laughs> funny while investigating simplicity. It turns out that simple isn't so simple, and it sure as hell isn't easy. We can pretty easily know what works just by using common sense, but it's a different thing to know why things work, and it's another thing altogether to know how to create messages that work. There's science and there's history. There are lessons from the world's most captivating leaders and most innovative companies. There are tools that we can all use to harness the power of simplicity to connect and communicate. And that's how we ended up here with a whole book about simplicity. So I want to jump to one other part. Now, I warned you, I was going to want to quote from this book. You write, over the past 10 years of building and running a marketing agency and nearly as long teaching marketing at my alma mater, Baruch College, I've been obsessed with trying to figure out why 
we do the things that we do and, and how we can be better at breaking through all that noise to tell the world our stories. I've worked with some of the greatest brands in business and some of the world's most influential scientists, executives, and writers. I've conducted hundreds of user and customer interviews, and I've talked with dozens of the most successful marketing minds working today. Everywhere I go, I've been trying to find the secret recipe that separates messages that work from those that don't. And then you write, the fact that I was on this quest, though, was all a little embarrassing, to be honest. <laughs> ben Gutman, why were you embarrassed? <laughs> well, I appreciate you quoting the, the preface of the book. That's my favorite, you know, one and a half pages of the entire thing. Uh, and so everybody just got it for free, which is great. The, uh, <laughs> but you know what? When I posted a <laughs> I mean, picture of your book on LinkedIn, <laughs> one person, a lot of people uh, respond. I let, want people to know that the the episode, the book's going to be featured. One person said, I'd be surprised if this book is over 100 pages. <laughs> so you're clearly <laughs> writing to the perception of the person who hasn't read it yet. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I knew I had to cut that off at the pass. And, and you know, when I circle back around and had to write that first page of it, uh, I had to start that way. And, I, and it's true. I thought, um, you know, if, if it's enough to say that it's simple, then great. Uh, but if you want to learn everything that is below the surface level there, then that's what the book is for. Um, but yeah, I mean, to get back to your question about the, the embarrassing piece is we in this business would get hired and paid lots of money to do stuff. And sometimes we don't know exactly what that stuff is or if it's effective or why we're doing it, but we're really good at getting the people to pay us the money to do this stuff. And and that's why this is the type of question that isn't always super interrogated because you get caught in the weeds a lot. You know, and later in that introduction, I break out the idea of there's there's the vessel and the contents. You know, the vessel is all the stuff that we do in marketing on a daily basis. It's the it's placing the ad. It's uh, you know publishing a social media content. It's um, you know dealing with an influencer campaign. All those things are are the vessel, and it's important. Well, and it's hard. Three martini and it's a lot lunches. Come on, Ben. Yeah, of course. But the contents is the stuff that sometimes we take for granted and. That's the harder part, and that's the more important thing. The vessel and the content is basically, what are you saying, and how are you saying it? That's the content is what are you saying, and then how are you saying it's everything else. Uh, and I think that with a lot of different factors, the pendulum is going to shift a little bit more in the next decade to the what are you saying component of the equation. Um, and, I, and that's what I tried to address in the book. Let's get a couple definitions out of the way. Simple is a term that I think everyone is familiar with. <laughs> But explain what your definition is from page five, just to set the stage, and then I'm going to ask about two other words. Absolutely. So simple, a simple message is when it is easily perceived, understood, and acted upon. Perceived, understood, and acted upon. Okay. And then there's two other halves of the communications equation that we're going to be using here uh, in this conversation, which I think you should get out of the way. Senders and receivers. Absolutely. So senders and receivers, I, I tried to appropriately simplify the the words that we use throughout the book because mm-hmm. everybody is both of these things, right? We're all in, in this conversation, you and I are both sending, we're both receiving. Um, and so you just break it out and you say, senders are those with the message. We are, it could be advertisers, executives, politicians, advocates, faith leaders, parents, teachers, there could be a million different people. Uh, and receivers are those for whom the message is, is meant. So, um, customers, voters, donors, users, citizens, uh, uh, everybody that is on the receiving end. And 
in again in every conversation you're wearing both of those hats going back and forth so we wanted to just break down uh get everything else out of the way because that all the other stuff is easy to get hung up on yes. well this is applied to politics this is applied. and so we wanted to say senders and receivers um are going to be the terms we're broadly going to use for both of those groups and i think if senders would give a millisecond of thought to who the receiver is <laughs> Right off the bat, their messages would probably improve. We'll talk about that. So I already warned you that I'm going to quote from this book a little more than I usually do. I got a quote from page nine here and ask you to expand on this. You write, while my background is in marketing and many of the most prolific senders are those with advertising dollars, this book isn't only for marketers. It's a wake-up call and a guide for anybody with something they want to tell others. However, It just so happens that our industry is the one that most folks call on when they find themselves in that very situation. This is what marketers do. We tell the world the idea we want people to know about, and if we're good at that, hopefully we get people to take action that we want them to take. Today, we're all marketers in some form. We go about our lives trying to persuade colleagues of our great idea, cajole our kids into doing their chores, or get our friends to donate to our fundraiser. So, Since you're part of the team, I figure it would be good to let you in on a couple of trade secrets before we go on (laughs) with the rest of this book. (laughs) And there's two. Ben Gutman, what are these these two secrets? And and if you need to speak more quietly, because it is a secret, that's fine. (laughs) Uh, Well, I think I kind of spoiled one of them when I spoke a moment ago about the – the the vessel and the content and the contents, the what Mm -hmm. you're saying and how you say it, Um, and and that's also the other secret there. If you want to take it a step further, and why this book and why this message is important now, is we're at this moment, this inflection point where it's kind of the death of the cookie. And you know, I don't want to get too technical on it, but basically, the advertising that worked for the past decade, two decades, however you want to measure it, uh, relied on, we're going to have a ton of information about you. We're going to track you all over the place. We're going to hit you over the head 20 times until you buy something. And that the blunt force marketing works really, really well, but it is not um, it is not going to be as effective in the next chapter, which is why folk, you know, anticipating that pendulum shift back to messaging and creative direction, all those things, uh, I think is more important. Right. You say technology has changed, but humans don't. The recipe for effective communication is the same as it has been since we first started writing on stone tablets 5,000 years ago. But let's go back to that first one, because it's one that hurts a lot of feelings, and it's so true, which is nobody cares. Absolutely. Break the bad news to the listener. That's the hardest thing for anybody who has something to say to kind of uh, internalize, to, to understand, is that by default, nobody cares. Uh, and this isn't to be mean. We care about lots of things. I know when I was writing the first draft of this and one of the, the readers of the uh, publisher had um, took a little bit of an issue with this. Like, oh, people care about lots of things. I'm like, yeah, they do. They do. They care. We care about uh, our sports teams. We just talked about the Yankees and the Jets before we were hopping on the call. To kind of bring things down a notch and <laughs> to depress ourselves. Yeah. Yes. I know, of course. You wanted to lower the energy a little bit, right? right. To talk about the <laughs> illustrious New York Jets. Yes. Um, but we care about all these things. We wake up and that's what we want to spend our time on. That's what we want to spend our attention on. But we don't, by default, care about your new widget. We don't care about your new political campaign. You have to connect it to things that do. Nobody woke up today and had watch commercials on their to-do list. Nobody said, I want to go click Instagram ads. I want to go open spam folder. Nobody wants to do that. Every time you've ever 
seen an ad has been against your will. And if you, if you understand that, it puts you in this very humble position where you realize, okay, you have to do the work to connect it, to, to be first respectful of the audience, and then also to connect it with what motivates them. And the second industry secret, uh, you're right, is about how the business of marketing itself works. For all the scaffolding we put up that makes our work seem professional, technical, or even scientific, the entire act of marketing boils down to just two things – what you say, and how you say it. So let's jump ahead. Explain the following from the chapter on our stupid brains in our busy world. We're bringing a Stone Age brain to a smart fight. And you also write, our biology and psychology want us to tune the noise out. And the world we've created is so full of clutter and chaos that it's a miracle anything gets through it. it Explain what's going on there and why our brains are so good at filtering. Oh, yeah. So I said, we're bringing a Stone Age brain to a smartphone fight, right? We have put up all sorts of things uh, in our, um, in in the past decade, century, millennia, you know, 100,000 years that have, um, that have taken our attention, that have changed how we behave, that have, um, you know, shaped the society we live, how we live. But, as humans, we haven't really changed in about two hundred and fifty thousand years, right? If you if you if you go back and you and you uh, bring somebody from uh, you know from those early uh, those early groups to here, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart in the same same physical human being. Yeah, we're still and using so the original operating we, system. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we have uh, we have built a world that is very noisy and this is not breaking news to anybody right build a world that's very noisy that there's a lot of things competing for our attention uh the average american spends about 13 hours a day uh, on some form of media right and in that time you're hearing thousands and thousands of messages all competing for your attention and you have to understand that's the environment that that we're in and if if you again if you assume like what we just talked about that nobody cares please if you assume that people care you're just going to you're just going to be, um, you're not going to get off the, the launch pad. You know, nobody's, nobody, it's never going to connect. It's never going to reach through. Um, and we, if you look back at that original operating system you mentioned, uh, all, of those, uh, all of those things that influence how we perceive things out in the world were designed for a world where a lot of things wanted to eat us. And we were really good about f- noticing certain things and filtering other things out to avoid that fate. And, uh, if you don't have that perspective when you're communicating today, then you're just going to get lost. Yes, yes. So I think a lot of folks uh, don't realize that. And, you know, thank goodness uh, our, 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 our ancestors had those instincts and their brains worked that way, or we probably wouldn't be here. So at the beginning of chapter three, you quote Steve Jobs as it relates to simplicity. And I want to play that. Simple can be harder than complex. You have to work hard to get your thinking clean, to make it simple. But it's worth it in the end, because once you get there, you can move mountains. I know this isn't fair, but Ben Gutman, please make the case <laughs> for simplicity, <laughs> because you know, there's a lot of business people and business owners and so forth listening to this, and they're thinking, oh, is this one more thing I got to do? Well, yeah, you, you kind of you need to think about this. Please make the case. I mean, it's it's hard to follow up, uh, you know, Steve Jobs obviously, and and 
totally different universe to be in. But the 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 mechanism for which uh, on which simplicity works is what scientists call fluency. And you, know, you can be fluent in a lot of things. We all know that word. I'm fluent in English. You can be fluent in Spanish or Mandarin. You can be fluent in wine or chess or cooking. There's lots of things you can be fluent in. Because where things are fluent, things are easy. It, it comes from the word flu. You know, the, the origin means flowing. And the idea of fluency from a cognitive perspective means that the things that are out in the world, you're able to take them, stick them in your brain, make sense of them in an easy way. That it doesn't take too much mental processing power. It doesn't take too much gas. It doesn't take too much uh, uh, sweat to figure out what it is that that is. And whenever something is fluent, whenever something is simple, we it does you know, it doesn't matter if it if it's in a font that's easier to read, if it is uh, language that's easier to to understand, we associate it with a whole host of positive feelings. You know, we're more likely to trust it, more likely to buy it, more likely to like it. And the opposite is true as well. When things are more complicated, when it takes a lot of friction, when it takes a lot of work for me to understand something, that is associated with a bunch of negative feelings. Right? You know, we're less likely to trust it, less likely to buy it, less likely to like it. And anybody who has something to say obviously wants to be in that former camp. We want our message to be something that people like, that people trust, and that people take action on. Let me add to that. You write on page 40, if we want to achieve fluent simplicity in our communications, how do we do that? And the answer is design. But this is, again, a term I think people may misunderstood. You write, simply defined, design means to create with purpose. Design is a business function, not an art function. Do you get a lot of pushback on that when you're talking to business groups? Do they think of design uh, as mean, being I, like I get, interior design or something? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I get it a lot from designers. My functional background is in design. I, I've been you know, toiling in Photoshop and Illustrator and whatever other platform for, for years. Um, and I still love to do that. And I also appreciate the artistic elements of it, for sure. But the the biggest beef that I have with uh, people in the design field, especially junior designers, senior designers tend to get this. And I've talked to some very senior designers over the over the years. Um, junior designers look at their design sometimes as an expression of themselves, as their emotions, their feelings, their anger at their mother, whatever it is. That's that's all wonderful, but that's the domain for art. Design is about business. Design is about solving problems. Uh, I would, when we ran the agency, and I was, we would present work to clients. I would try to ban the word "like" from the conversation because I don't really care if you like it. I care. Oh, that that's it great. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I don't. I care that it, it works, that it communicates what it needs to communicate, that it's effective, uh, that it's compliant, that all these different things that are more important than you liking it. Liking it is the knock-on effect of all those other things. If your website sells a lot of, lot of product, you're going to like it. It doesn't matter if it's your favorite color or not, you're going to like it. And so that that's the the mindset that I think separates some of the, the most effective designers from those that, that haven't broken through is they understand that design is about solving problems. It's not about creating art. Uh, and this is not to diminish art at all, but it is, it is to distinguish design as a separate function. And that design can be something 
visual, or it can be something system-wide, or it can be something like fashion even, or it could be something like messaging like we're talking about. You know, in a very weird and unrelated way, that reminds me of that scene from the movie The Fugitive where uh, Tommy Lee Jones played the federal agent <laughs> and he was chasing the doctor who was played by Harrison Ford, and they have a brief encounter when he almost catches him. The fugitive then turns to the lawman and says, I didn't do it. I'm I'm not guilty. I didn't kill my wife. That's what it was. It was a <laughs> I didn't kill my wife and the federal agent says, "I don't care." I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. <laughs> That's one of the best scenes. I love that movie. Yeah. <laughs> So it goes back to you saying, I don't really, I don't care what you like. I mean, you don't want to say that to your employees, but I I, I hear you. I hear you. Let me just ask one other thing here. Page 46, you write that simplicity by being focused on the receiver is a form of kindness. And then you write, but kindness and niceness are not the same thing. Explain why you made that distinction. Absolutely. So this is, as a New Yorker, something that ends up coming up a lot, which is, we are known for not necessarily being nice, but we're known for being kind, actually. Nice is a surface-level descriptor. It is it is about being polite. It's about decorum. It's about um, you know everybody kind of smiling, grinning, and bearing it, and, and not ruffling any feathers. Uh, nice is certainly valuable in a lot of situations. Uh, but kind is a descriptor of intent. It is a, it's about caring about the, the goodwill of the receiver. It's about um, caring about the actual outcomes. And it may not be nice. I mean, I would argue New Yorkers are not always nice, but we're certainly kind. And, you know, not to poo-poo anywhere else in the country, but there are certain reasons where maybe people are nice, but not kind. Yes. And, and that's, you know, the kind of the stereotype of, of certain, um, you know, certain groups. But in New York, the example that I use in that chapter, which I love. So if you go back a few decades, we had a mayor named Ed Koch, who oh, was right. like, the, like New York, you know, personified, uh, very, very gregarious character. Uh, his department of transportation put up parking signs that said, don't even think of parking here. <laughs> don't even think of parking here. Uh, th- there's, uh, you know, it's, you know, there are not many signs that get sequels or fan art uh, in terms of uh, traffic signs. And this one did. It got, you know, no parking, no standing, no stopping, no kidding. Um, and, but, but this one did. Um, this one was so effective, uh, you know, you can still go buy a replica of it somewhere. Um, and it's, it's kind, it's not nice, because it tells you exactly what you need to know. Mm-hmm. But when you compare that to kind of some Byzantine structure of no parking this day for this day, this type of vehicle, or, you know, or sometimes on holidays, all that stuff is nice, it's you know it's it's you know it's easy in tr- in terms of you know getting away with it, but it doesn't actually communicate the message that you want to that you want to communicate. Mm. Yes, well, I lived in New York for a number of years, and I really like New Yorkers. And I tell you one thing, I I really miss, and I, I really particularly enjoyed, is that with New Yorkers, I always got feedback. I always knew where I stood with them, so that even if my creative director was urging me to go perform an anatomically impossible act on myself, at least I knew where I stood. And so whenever I hear a New York accent, I always, you know, it makes me smile. It's like, oh, there's somebody I can, <laughs> there's somebody I know where I stand, I can trust them. And then because I am from the South, I can say this, <laughs> there are certain Southerners that I still find <laughs> it difficult to decode. In other words, they might 
seem very nice, but they can be uh, deceptive. I don't know. I'm being I'm being mean to my people, but uh, but I can. Okay. <laughs> so one other thing I want to ask from that, and that had to do with John Wanamaker. And I swear, I think if I'd heard this one more time from a client in my long advertising career, my head was going to blow up. And I'm going to quote it here. This is from page 48, where you say, A century ago, John Wanamaker, a Philadelphia retailer and early marketing pioneer, complained, Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted, and the trouble is, I don't know which half. And then I would add, insert client laughter. I have a hunch about the answer. It's probably the half that didn't need to be there in the first place. When we pay for advertising that is self-serving, complicated, and not squarely focused on the customer and their needs, then we're flushing money down the toilet. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? So Ben Gutman, in World War II, the precursor to the Central Intelligence Agency published what was called the Simple Sabotage Field Manual. The Simple Sabotage Field Manual. <laughs> Talk about how spies were taught <laughs> to complicate matters. Oh, yeah. I mean, this, this is a uh, really kind of fascinating document if you're able to dig it up. And you can go you can go search for review Google Simple Sabotage Field Manual. There's all sorts of public archives you can find it in. Um, there's lots of stuff in there. There's stuff about uh, how you can, you know, gum up factories and, and spoil gas tanks and screw up all sorts of, uh, you know, machinery of war. And it's actually, it's very interesting to read all that stuff. Uh, and hopefully that's not going to be too applicable for most of us on a day-to-day basis. But if you go to the end of that, um, the end of that document, the last couple of pages, there is a section about how to gum up organizations, how to make meetings inefficient, how to make people just kind of frustrated and and uh, not able to do their job. And you'll see things that will be eerily familiar to anybody who's had to work on a really bad team or you know, had a boss or a coworker that really annoyed them. Uh, and just to quote, I'll quote a couple of them. So one of them is, make speeches, talk as frequently as possible and at great length. Illustrate your points by long anecdotes and accounts of personal experiences. Never hesitate to make a few appropriate patriotic comments. Uh, and if you look the further on, it's when training new workers, give incomplete and misleading instructions. Then give lengthy and incomprehensible explanations when questioned. All of these are literally instructions about how to sabotage an organization. Yes. The, this, <laughs> this was guidance for spies about how to be bad at your job. But it's also something that a lot of us will see in our day-to-day lives. Uh, and it, it's, it's eerie, but it's a warning for, uh, for avoiding complication as much as you can. I couldn't believe it, and I just thought, you know, I'd like to get a copy of that or at least a picture of the cover and frame it and put it up on the conference room wall and just point it to it when somebody is, is, is causing trouble. I think I've worked with people who probably didn't read that, but they took this to heart and they did it, and I'm laughing to keep from crying. One other quick definition I want to get out of the way, which I thought was very interesting, is the distinction between complicated versus complex. I think folks should be careful when they use these two words to use them right. Could you explain the difference between complicated and complex? Yes. So complex 
is when something has a lot of different parts and they're interconnected and there's a, uh, a maze of different relationships. And this occurs in nature. This occurs in, in, in human, um, in human endeavors all the time. And nothing is wrong with complex. I say that, you know, international diplomacy is complex. A computer chip is complex. Corporate mergers are complex. It's a lot of work, those things. But complicated is the enemy. Complexity is not the enemy. Complicated is. Because complicated is when something could be simple and we've made it complex. Mm -hmm. It's when we didn't do the work of pulling it back towards the simple end of the spectrum. So the bad check-in instructions from your Airbnb hosts are complicated. Uh, the getting your printer to work is complicated. The dense memo about your office's new PTO policy, that's complicated. Uh, and we're willing to put up with complex things when they're worth it and when we're motivated to do so, but we're not willing to do the same for complicated things. So that's, that's the important distinction is we're not arguing against there being nuance in the world. We're arguing against where you can simplify things that you must do it. Yes. Complicated is when something is complex, but it could be simple. So just two quick, quick questions before we talk about the, the five tools that you mentioned. You, you say there are three sins of complicated, selfish, cowardly, and dangerous. Boy, pretty strong words there, Ben Gutman. Explain what you mean by selfish, cowardly, and dangerous. Oh, boy. So this chapter is written kind of as like an indictment against complication, <laughs> and, it kick, and it kicks off the solution. Which right. is the, you mentioned the five pieces. Yeah, and it's, it, it covers like 10 pages in the book. So I, I realize I just asked you a big question, but selfish, cowardly, <laughs> and dangerous, but it really got my attention. So selfish is that a complicated message prioritizes the sender instead of the receiver. Um, and I, I use examples there talking about like the terms of use that we, uh, the end user, license, end user license agreements that we sign off on on a daily basis being used to kind of hide nefarious acts. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's selfish is that it's something that is used for your own benefit and it's not actually caring about the receiver. Right. And I can remember uh, on John Oliver's show on HBO, at one point he was talking about how those terms, you know, the, the, the terms and agreements, he said you, you could put the entire text of Hitler's Mein Kampf and people would say, I agree, I agree. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, ha I have examples in there of just all sorts of things that you, you wouldn't want to agree to, which we do agree to on a daily basis. Right. Um, so the second uh, indictment, the second count against uh, complicated is cowardly. And it's because we complicate when we are afraid. We complicate when we, we don't know our stuff, when we want to hide behind a wall of words. Uh, I'm sure you've been in a meeting. I know I've been in a meeting. I know I've been guilty of it, of, you know, you don't know your, the answer to the question the client's asking you. So you just kind of filibuster enough big words until you can plausibly get out of there. And uh, that's, that's going to be a thing I feel like a lot of folks are going to smirk at because we all know that's how it works. Yeah. We, there's nowhere to hide when it comes to simplicity. You have to know your stuff. You have to be confident in the idea you're pitching and the movement you're pushing, whatever it's going to be. But when something's complicated, we can kind of noodle around to the nuance instead of actually, instead of actually addressing the big idea. Mm -hmm. And then the third piece is about danger. And this is... You know, you could. I, I have a, a long anecdote in there illustrating uh, a piece of particularly complicated communication that that led to a, a, the uh, Columbia space shuttle uh, disaster. But if you look just statistically, I mean, uh, most it's the number one cause of of, of aviation 
accidents, number one cause of healthcare uh, uh, accidents, number one cause of divorce, number one cause of people being unhappy at their job. It's all communication. And if we're not good at communicating, we are not going to uh, do the important work that we have to do otherwise. It's a necessary component of everything. And so if we're neglecting to put in the effort to be a good communicator as an individual or an organization, uh, it is not a victimless crime. It does end up hurting people, both physically and then also on the bottom line. Uh, companies that are less effective communicators that have more complicated like um, uh, investor reports have lower valuations than those that don't. Oh, so it's important no that's matter right. what you value. Yes, yes. Yeah. And let me just quote from, uh, you have uh, Jack Welch, uh, the late uh, uh, chairman of GE. Uh, he wrote, insecure managers create complexity. Frightened, nervous managers use thick, convoluted planning books and busy slides filled with everything they've known since childhood. <laughs> and then uh, he goes on to write, you can't believe how hard it is for people to be simple, how much they fear being simple. They worry that if they're simple, people will think they're simple-minded. In reality, of course, it's just the reverse. Clear, tough-minded people are the most simple. So let's, uh, and before we wrap up, let's talk uh, very briefly uh, about the five ways that you outline in your book, which are beneficial, focused, salient, Empathetic and minimal, and let's let's touch on those. Beneficial. We go to page seventy-five, and I again, Gutman. If you wrote a crappier book, I wouldn't quote from it so much. But instead, you had to write this one. <laughs> so you write. Let's say you work for a big tool company. Every day, you walk in, stroll past the assembly lines on the factory floor, and hike the stairs up to your office. Then, settling into your desk, you see today's first assignment: craft an ad for the company's newest line of cordless drills. Balanced by its hefty battery pack, this bright orange and black tool sits on your desk and you pick it up to take a closer look. The engineers worked hard to squeeze more torque out of this one, and when you pull the trigger, you can feel the powerful motor spin. Down the hall, the design team tested hundreds of handles to find the most ergonomic grip. You scribble down a couple of notes, and after noodling on it for a few minutes, you type, Now, with 20% more power, a new ultra-comfort silicone grip and improved eight-hour battery life, the Simple Drill 3000 is the best tool for homeowners and construction pros alike. Seems good enough. Let's send the ad off to print. And then you write, all these facts are true. The product is better than ever, but that ad sucks. <laughs> ben, why does it suck? Well, that is an ad that is focused on features, not on benefits. And this won't be revelatory to probably most folks that we're talking to right now. But it happens all the time. But it happens all the time. All the time. Because here's the thing. Our default is we will open up the doors to our five senses, see how something looks like, smells like, tastes like, and then just describe them. And then that's what we're talking about. That's what we describe. That's what we put in our ad. And that's fine. That's all true. But that's not why people are buying drills. There's a quote that I love, which is in the book, which is um, something that I tell my students every year. And I say, if you remember nothing else from this class, if you never remember anything from any marketing class, remember this sentence. And it's from uh, Harvard professor Theodore Levitt in the oh, 20th century. Yes. He said, people don't want to buy a quarter-inch drill. They want a quarter-inch hole. People don't want a quarter-inch drill. They want a quarter-inch hole. That's it. We don't buy the drill. We want the hole. We want, we want, and actually, you can even go further. You can say, I don't want the hole. I want the photo up on the wall. 
I don't want the photo up on the wall. I want to be reminded of my family and see them yes. every time I walk down the stairs. All of those things are why we buy the drill. It's not because we just want to own the drill. And it's intuitive as when we are consumers in the world, but when we're putting our stuff out there, we're the advertisers, the marketers, the salespeople. We have a really hard time getting past that first piece. And the answer to get there is actually a really easy tool. It's just asking, so what? Yes, the so what so test. What? I love it. Ask hey. it three times. Yeah. So what? So what? So what? It brings you down from the feature to the functional benefit. Functional benefit is what changes in the world. What is the thing that you, you know, that's the whole. To the emotional benefit, to which is how you feel about it. To the need, which if you look at, you know, every every bad management presentation or psychology book you've read has Maslow's hierarchy of needs in it. And for a good reason, because those are the things that motivate us. And so if you want to really connect at a deeper level, that's where you want to get to. And then once you have that that the, the list of uh, need, emotional benefit, functional benefit, invest accordingly is whatever your situation requires. Maybe you want to lead of the emotional part. Maybe you want to lead of the need. Maybe you want to lead of the functional part. And uh, th- that helps you identify the elements that you have to work with to create an effective message. Yes, I know I sound like an interior designer because I'm coming up with all these ideas for everyone's conference room, but you could also put up the words, so what, <laughs> on the conference <laughs> room uh, wall, and people could then then point to it. So let's jump to the next one, which is focused. And before we do that, I want to set the stage. we proceed. I have one question, Dr. Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. (laughs) Quoting from page 93, you write, every semester I have my marketing students form agencies to work on several group projects. In the first assignment, they have to work together to develop a pitch for a brand that I brief them on, and I bring in some other marketing professionals to help play the role of client, give feedback, and pick a winning proposal. Now, many of my students do brilliant work. Every single time I see in these undergrads the same fatal error that every seasoned executives fall victim to. Ben Gutman, what is it? It's the Frankenstein idea. And so if you, if you look at Mary Shelley's uh, landmark you know, horror novel and you look at how she describes the monster, uh, it's kind of nice. It describes a lot of individually beautiful features. She writes, his limbs were in proportion. I had selected his features as beautiful, beautiful, great God. Talks about the hair and the eyes and the muscles. But then she goes on and says, but when they come together, it is this horrid contrast. It's this gruesome composite. And it is worse than the sum of its parts. The individual items in that message, in that pitch, in that uh, creative idea, can be great. They can be beautiful. They can be effective on their own. But oftentimes, if you're trying to do more than one thing at once, if you're trying to say more than one thing at once, it ends up being less effective than if you chose one and you committed to it. Uh, And the example, you know, talk about the conference room. You might be getting around the table and say, we have to launch this new product. How do we do it? Somebody says, well, NFTs and AI and influencers and drones and and three different hashtags go up on the whiteboard. And all of these individually might have merit and they might be good. But if you put them all together, then it ends up 
more often than not, almost 100% of the time, being a worse result, a less focused, a less simple result than if you just chose one you committed. Yes, and uh, you also write that if Frankenstein's monster, or Frankenstein, whichever, I don't know, tell me, if Frankenstein's monster is the most cursed creation in literature, committees are the most gruesome foe in the business world. I won't ask you to go into that, but there's there's uh, information in that chapter about how best to deal with a committee and how to structure it so it's more helpful. But I want to ask one, uh, one other little hack here. You say Frankenstein's monster is sewn together by ands, meaning the word and. Explain the concept of replacing the word and with so. Absolutely. So, and is this sneaky little word that can put a lot of different things together and make them feel like they make sense. And it's funny, every time I talk about this, I have to be careful of the word and that I use as I'm talking about it. But it has this magic ability to take ideas, to take clauses that don't relate to each other. And once you put them all together with the word and in between, it sounds okay. Somebody hears it, somebody reads it, and they go, oh, okay, that's a, um, a proper grammatically correct English sentence. But it doesn't necessarily imply that it makes sense. And if you interrogate the ands and you replace them, and I wrote about the word so, because I think that's the most general one in, uh, in this toolkit, but you could use however, you could use but, you could use therefore. Uh, if you replace it with the word so, all of a sudden, your brain wants to connect the first piece to the second piece. It wants to say, okay, well, I'm doing this strategy, therefore this tactic. And it throws, and if it makes sense, then you're golden. If it doesn't make sense, then you realize, okay, this is not, this is not the right uh, piece of it. The word and can sew together a lot of things, but it doesn't make for a focused idea. You mentioned we are going to develop a loyalty program for our cafe and release a line of collectible coffee mugs. So I could see how that could kind of slip through, but then you go on to write that we're going to develop a loyalty program for our cafe, so we'll release a line of collectible coffee mugs. It seems like the problem is that people, when they hear the word with and, they're tricked into thinking it makes sense. It's logical. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Let's jump to salient. So uh, back in my advertising days, Account executives and planners would write what is called a creative brief to give to the creative department so they could have the instructions and the parameters they need to develop the ads. And there was a great expression that was used, tight briefs liberate. So explain Hmm. that concept of of salient, which is the third one that I mentioned, uh, and how to impose constraints on ourselves when trying to be simple. Salience is defined as something standing out, something coming to your attention, something contrasting often with the background. And the way you do that is by doing something that's different than what everybody else is doing. Uh, If everybody is zigging, you want to zag. The uh, most effective way to put yourself in a position to be salient is to kind of go the opposite, as what you're just saying, of what you might think. You don't want freedom. You don't want every opportunity. You want every option. You want to have constraints because it's they act often as a forcing mechanism for you to do more creative, more effective work. 
Uh, and I, I opened this chapter with an anecdote about Dr. Seuss. And so uh, he was challenged by his, by his publisher to write a book that had used only 250 words. They drew up a list of it, say, go write this book. And he toils away for nine months. And he comes back with the cat in the hat, which has 236 of those words. And then his publisher, his editor this time, makes him a bet. Says, I bet you can't do it with 50 words. Just 50 words. You can write a whole book of that. And so he says, okay, let's try it again. Goes out, toils away, writes his book, comes back, at exactly 50 words, green eggs and ham. Yes. Which ends up being his most successful book, sold 20 million copies. It's always on the top list of like the best books you can do. And that's just a, a small example. And uh, if you asked him later in life, he was uh, the reason he they had this challenge was because uh, Life Magazine at the time wrote an article about slipping child literacy uh, because Fun with Dick and Jane, all those different books uh, were really bad. People didn't like them at all. I can and attest they to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so Seuss, when he's older, he looks back and says, one of the, I th- he says, I think one of the happiest things I've done is getting rid of Dick and Jane. Uh, <laughs> but the, the idea of, of pressure, of con- the pressure formed by constraints, ends up pushing us to do interesting stuff. And it turns out, when you look at the research behind this, that there's the, the secret is medium pressure. Uh, if a little bit of pressure is not really helping anything. If, if, I, if you told me, hey, this deadline for your, your book, for your ad, for your design, if you tell me this deadline is in a year, well, that's not a problem. That's not, that's not my problem. That's future Ben's problem. He's got to go deal with that. I'm not going to do anything. Um, but if you told me that the deadline is tomorrow to write the whole you know, essay or whatever I got to do, uh, well, that's no time. I can't do, I can't come up with a new idea. I can't come up with a new message. I can't come up with a, a new design. Uh, I just have to kind of copy and paste. I have to do what I, you know, piss something off of a template. I have to do something quick. And so either end of that spectrum there doesn't really help us. It turns out that the meat, that the middle where he has just enough pressure, where it kind of keeps the momentum up, that's where we want to be when we're trying to, to, to develop salient messages. So the listener knows he also has a whole section on how to limit your time. Ask any journalist, and they'll say they love deadlines. <laughs> they won't always admit it. Oh, yeah. But they, they like that. So let's jump to uh, empathetic. And I read the chapter on empathy with a little bit of nervousness, Ben Gutman, because I thought you were going to mention me. Idiot! <laughs> you write on page 129, we can avoid the fate of of a fictional phaser beam or a real-life clunky sales call by harnessing the power of empathy and welcoming a character we'll call the enlightened idiot. I should add, nowhere in the chapter did he mention me, but explain what this uh, enlightened idiot is. I think it's very helpful. Well, the, the phaser beam you mentioned references a, a, a Star Trek episode that, that led the chapter. Um, so the enlightened idiot, I purposely... Uh, use those words because it, it's salient. It stands out. It's someone goes, oh, shit, someone's calling someone an idiot as part of this. But if you look back on the actual word for um, the Greek origins of the word idiot, uh, it's loving. It means the common man. It doesn't mean somebody of low intelligence. And for enlightened, we mean somebody free of misinformation and of bias. I say that being the enlightened idiot is aspirational. It is not a single person. It is not even a separate group of people. The enlightened idiot is all of us when we step outside of our bubbles. And the chapter on empathy is all about, the principle of empathy here, is about speaking in the language 
literally and figuratively, of our audience and meeting them where they are. And the way we do that is by, and this is not going to be breaking news, it's by bringing them in. That's the most effective way to do that. You mean actually talk to them? Actually talking to them, you know, groundbreaking stuff. But if we if we talk to our audience, we're gonna just even a little bit, we'll be in so much of a better position when we're going out communicating. I don't I can't tell you how many times I've sat around with a client and they have been working at their company for months or years or decades, and they cannot articulate anything in plain English. Because they are so indoctrinated by the internal language of their company, the internal jargon, the internal acronyms, that they forgot what it's like to be on the other side of the equation, to be the, the, the customer. Uh, and br- just the act of bringing in an agency, uh, they're enlightened idiots as in, in, uh, in many ways, uh, will help somebody shift their language, shift their communication to, uh, to a common ground where it could be understood. And we should underscore, these are not stupid people. Your customers are not stupid people. <laughs> They're busy, and they have other areas of ex- expertise, and they manifest uh, you know, their desires in different ways than the way you are writing about it. And you write that testing your message on others, like you just mentioned, actually talking to them, is the most no-brainer tactic in this entire book yet it will likely be the most ignored. Why else do you think that is? Uh, you mentioned already that people get really wrapped up in the internal culture, but I guess this is one of the questions, like, what is the meaning of life? I keep asking myself on this podcast, what is it that is keeping companies from talking to their customers? Why do you think this is so ignored? Because it's uncomfortable. Because you might hear something that you don't want. Uh, people don't like to do it because that means they have to, it takes a little bit of legwork. You got to go find them. You got to go, you know, I remember when I was working on a project, I had to stand on the floor of Grand Central Terminal and flag people down so I could interview them for something. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you have to do stuff like that. And <laughs> most people don't enjoy doing that. I'm a weirdo. I enjoy doing that. But so many folks don't like to talk to new people, to strange, you know, to strange audiences, they prefer the familiar, and they're also afraid that the feedback they're going to get is going to be negative. And it's always curious to me why people are afraid of negative feedback. I get it on one hand because you know it's uncomfortable to hear that, but on the other hand, it's like, well, if you got the negative feedback, then you—that's so much more helpful. You know what to do now. You know, when when I was writing this book, even and I would get notes. Notes that just said, hey, this is great. I mean, that's nice. Give me a little smile. But if somebody said, this paragraph makes no sense, that is so much more helpful. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. And it was. Yeah, thank you. Please give me more of that. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of us don't don't enjoy that uh, constitutionally. And uh, it, it, it's, it takes a lot to push us out of that, that rut. Yes. It's like my affection for New Yorkers. <laughs> I got, they're full of feedback, thank God. You know, it also reminds me, I can remember when I worked in New York, uh, worked on a, sh- a razor account, and it was the Schick, Schick razors. And they had just developed this uh, really thin razor, and they called it the, the Slim Twin. And so everything was about how slim the razor was, how you could get it up under your nose. And we had a commercial that had Larry Bird in it. He was famous for his nose. But I can remember mm-hmm. being in a focus group out in New Jersey, which I gather is where all focus groups uh, happen. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) 
And this moderator, you know, she kept asking about that. And finally, one of the guys, it was be a room full of guys. And finally, this one guy said, who the hell cares how slim it is? That's all you people are talking about. <laughs> that was helpful. <laughs> that client didn't want to hear it. But there you go. So the last uh, of the five that I mentioned is minimal. Ben, explain why minimal matters and how, as you write in your book on page 143, how to say shit without bullshit. <laughs> uh, so minimal is at the end on purpose, because what it means is it's that your message has everything it needs, but only what it needs. Uh, there is a big confusion when I talk about minimal, uh, which people instinctively believe I need the shortest word. I need the shortest amount of words. Like I need it I to need be a haiku paragraph. Yeah. People think that, and there's, there's some benefits to that for sure. But the, it's not about having the fewest number of words, fewest number of slides, fewest number of pages on your website. It's about minimizing the friction. That's the metric that we are measuring. Um, if you have ever done anything in the user experience world to pull back the design for a second, what you're trying to do is make an experience that is easy, that is no-brainer, that is something a child can do and a senior citizen can do in equal measure. You want a, a message that is behaves in the same way. We get this when we're talking about dollars and cents, when you talk about user experience. If you ever go and you shop online for, you know, for whatever, you're going to go buy a pair of pants, and you get to the checkout screen, you'll notice everything else is stripped away. The menu to go back to some other category, the about us page, the investor relations page, all those things are gone. And the only buttons you can press are going to advance you towards the goal, which is to check out and buy those pair of pants and enter your credit card. And we should structure our communications with the same mindset, which is that everything should be there to get the point across, but we should eliminate the things that are the off-ramps. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one of the big things I mentioned in the book is yes. everything that's that's superfluous is an off-ramp. There's lots of things that want our attention in the world, right? There's 13,000 messages in my inbox. I have, you know, phone buzzing and there's something on the TV and then I have a whole book, shelf full of books. All those things demand my attention. And if you're giving me friction, if you're giving me a reason to get off this highway that is driving me towards the goal here, I'm going to do it. That's just my nature. And so you want to eliminate that as much as you can. You're right. Bullshit is an off-ramp. <laughs> Unnecessarily complicated <laughs> language or words and terms without clear meanings become opportunities for the receiver to pull off and check out. So one of the things I want to ask about that is um, a great reminder. And again, I see this all the time. Explain why you should speak to one person and not a crowd. I hear and I see a lot of crowd messages out there. So I argue that crowds don't exist in many ways. They exist in terms of I can go be at a political rally or at a, again, terrible judge game. But <laughs> in ev every time that you have ever heard a message, you've heard it in your own head. It's been one-to-one. -one. If you're at the political rally, you're hearing it one-to-one. -one. If you're seeing that commercial on TV, you're hearing it in your own head. And if we don't behave that way, if we if we broadcast everything, say, everybody go check this out. That doesn't mean anything because I'm not part of everybody. I'm me, right? That's, I, I, so you, you have to talk to an individual. Uh, the best thing you can do is go find that enlightened idiot, go find the person that's the right, per, the right uh, audience and talk to them and, and test things out that way. Uh, 
barring that, go get a post-it note, doodle a little stick figure on it, stick it on the side of your monitor and say, this is who I'm talking to. This is who I'm writing for. Mm-hmm. And that will will shape your your communication in an um, in a positive, more minimal direction. Last question I want to ask about the book brought to mind one of my brothers who sends these emails and he's not familiar with the uh, return key where you can break it up into paragraphs. <laughs> <laughs> Explain wh- why is cleaning up how your message literally looks vital and too often an overlooked part of getting your idea across. So most of the information that we take in comes in through our eyes. Most mm-hmm. of our brains devoted to that. Uh, even if it is a, a text message or email or magazine article, uh, all of those things are coming in through our eyes. And we don't behave in the way that we think we behave when we're looking at text, especially on a screen. We don't go from the top left to the bottom right, or if your culture you know, goes from right to left that way. We jump around. We will, and this is something that's been observed not just recently, but for decades. Right? If you look at eye tracking studies done by usability researchers going back to the 90s, they will show that we kind of look a little bit in the top right, but then we look for a headline, we look for a subheadline, we try to find the one that's relevant to us. Maybe we get we our eyes jot over to a pull quote or bullets or bold. Um, we start to then scan for. Maybe I'm looking for a phone number. Maybe I'm looking for a name. Maybe for a price. And we start to say, okay, what is on the screen that is shaped that way? And so we don't respond. I mean, if on paper, it's a little bit different. And so that's why you can go ahead and read this book um, from top to bottom. But if you're organizing your message in a way that is aware of this, you're going to use bullets and headlines and bold and links and call-out boxes and all these other tools that we, we have at our disposal to more clearly display the message and that will ultimately um, uh, be the final like final push in order to get your idea across yes and white space is our friend oh man so I will argue till I'm blue in the face that pixels are free and slides are free if you are designing a website use the pixels go ahead people scroll we don't have to have everything above the fold. We don't have the fold doesn't exist on the screen. Uh, you can use the the uh, section breaks and the headlines and all these different things to put more emphasis on the things that matter. It's one of those paradoxical things, right? We're not looking for the shortest website. We're not looking for the smallest paragraph. We're looking for something that's the easiest for us, the most fluent for us to process. And using more space helps us get there. Amen. Well, Ben, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? If you go back all the way to the beginning, we were talking about definitions and senders and receivers. I think the most important thing to understand is that senders bear the responsibility in communication. Just as if you were sending a letter, you have to pay for the postage, <laughs> the sender has to bear the physical, the, the, the very real and the metaphorical cost of communicating. Well said. Well said. Let's give the listeners something to do today. As soon as they finish listening to this and maybe while they're waiting for the book to show up, what, what's one thing a listener could do today to just start to put in action one of the ideas from your book? I mean, I was going to say talk to the audience of one. I think that's a really powerful tool. Oh. Uh, I'll throw out another one, which is uh, we talk about in this design chapter, structural integrity. You can play uh, verbal Jenga 
which if you know the game Jenga, it's all these little blocks to put in a tower and you pull out different blocks to, um, to see how long the tower can last before it falls over. Try that with your message. Write out, write out your paragraph, write out your description, whatever it is. Pull out words until it doesn't make sense anymore. And then it'll collapse and then start to, and then, okay, now you know where your starting place is. This is the, this is the minimum I need to be able to, uh, to be able to articulate what I want to say. Ah, uh, yes. And kill your darlings, I think is one of the expressions you had in here, which I've, I've seen before. So Ben, looking back, what books have most inspired your working career? So you mentioned some of like the, the Mad Men-esque days of marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mad Men inspired by David Ogilvy. Uh, Ogilvy on advertising, uh, I have that looking at it right now on my shelf over here, is probably one of the best books you can read to get the general sense of things. I actually recommend it to my students a ton because I'm saying, look, mo- most of the stuff in here is going to be outdated in terms of that vessel part. But the contents of that vessel, what you're saying, he's going to do an incredible job of articulating that. That's number one. Uh, I would also recommend Influence by Robert Cialdini, which I'm sure many, many folks here have, have read. Uh, I think that book was is one of the most, um, you know, for lack of a better term, influential uh, books uh, about communication, design, marketing that you can read. Uh, and then... I will also give a shout out to Design as a Job by Mike Montero. And this is a short little book. Uh, I read it when we first started our agency about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, whatever it was. And the in just a few, few dozen pages there, uh, Montero is giving the best advice to anybody who has who works in a creative field that I can I can imagine. Uh, I've reread it a couple of times since then. I recommend it to my students. Uh, it's anybody who has who if you're a designer, great. If you're a copywriter, you're a video person, photographer, anybody who works in creative field, uh, he he's a great voice to go uh, go check out. Interesting. Design is a job. The necessary second edition. I see. There's a new one that came out in 2022. <laughs> Did not know that one. That's why I ask it. Otherwise, I think we were separated at birth because when I look back, if I were to ever ask myself this question, and I do talk to myself occasionally, but I don't interview myself for this podcast, what books have most inspired your working career? Ogilvy and Advertising is one of two books that have had the biggest impact. I came back from overseas when I was in the Army. I ultimately read that book and I said, that is it. That is what I want to do. The right book at the right time can have an enormous impact. And I have had the honor of interviewing Robert Cialdini uh, twice and most recently about the new and expanded edition of Influence. So he wrote the original one in 84. Mm -hmm. And then uh, he wrote a new one just a Two, two, three years ago, and it is amazing, amazing. And that's like one of 10 books every marketer should read, if they only read 10 Absolutely. <laughs> in their whole life. Yeah, great answers. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Yeah, you mentioned, or you surprised me at the top of the call here with uh, Michael Shine and Alexandra Watkins' voice. I, I recommend both of their books quite a bit, actually. Um, uh, Alexandra's book, I have used that in my company when I would do uh, naming and we would use that her model as part of the framework for it. Uh, and so I, it was a big honor to not only get her, um, uh, get to know her over the past few years, get her blurb on the book and uh, be at the same publisher, Baird Kohler as her, which has been really wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Michael Shine, I've known him for a long time, and his book, The Hype Handbook, is excellent. Recommend it to everybody as well. Uh, he, Mike's a great writer, and 
uh, a lot of business books are, are not as well written as his, so I appreciate that. And then lastly, it hasn't, I don't know if it came out yet, I think it comes out in a few weeks, uh, uh, Adam Grant's new book, uh, Adam is uh, awesome, I've gotten a chance to, to meet him a few times, work oh. with him on a couple of things, and he he is the uh, model for what I wanted to, as I was writing this book, to try to to blend both kind of research and case studies in a way that he does, and he's the best at that, and I, um, I've i always enjoyed everything he's put together. Oh, wow. Is it uh, Hidden Potential, his newest book? Yep. The Science of Achieving Greater Things? Oh, yeah. he's He is really amazing. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable, including all the books uh, that have been mentioned, your site, your LinkedIn profile, and now a word to you, dear listener. I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out to Ben and congratulate him on this exceptionally well-written book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast and putting up with the host's foolishness. Guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners with questions or whatever, particularly with things that resonated with them in the, in the interview. Please let him know. I, I'm hoping this isn't Ben's last book, and when he comes out with another book, he's going to be thinking, now, which podcast do I want to go back on? <laughs> oh, wait, I never heard from anybody who listened to my Marketing Book Podcast. Center. Please, folks, help me out. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote. Come on, Ben, you didn't think you were going to get away with without a final quote. Page 170, we started this book with a problem. Why do some messages work when others don't? And ended it by equipping ourselves to face it. In the first half, we identified the challenges in our communication crisis, our squishy brains and the noisy world those brains created. We saw how fundamentally challenging it it is to successfully connect from sender to receiver. And then we indicted the culprit, complication. Complication, artificially created complexity is selfish, cowardly, and dangerous. But unfortunately, it's, it's in our nature. But then science and history give us the tool to win this fight, simplicity. Beneficial messages prioritize the receiver. Focused messages narrow in on telling a single story. Salient messages stand out in a crowded world. Empathetic messages show understanding. Minimal messages are designed with intention. Taken together, simple messages allow us to inform, persuade, and connect in a world that so often pushes back the other way. The book is simply put, why clear messages win and how to design them. The author is Ben Gutman. Ben, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for having me, Douglas. This has been a total blast. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. 